0: Welcome to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter by chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah, chapter 15. Well, we find in this chapter that Abinadiah is still standing before King Noah and his court. Here, Abinadi returns to his own words. We know in the previous chapter that he recited Isaiah chapter 53. And now, Abinadi will discuss the contents of that chapter in the first part of Mosiah chapter 15. And then we will find him returning back once again to this opening question that was posed by the priest at the beginning of Abinadi's trial, having to do with the meaning of this passage in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. We've discussed this a great deal already and know that this passage was initially used to frame Abinadi. Uh, However, it turns out that this passage is really the perfect opening to Abinadi's sermon to these people. And we will find him coming to a full explanation of this passage as he comes through the end of chapter 15. He will even go so far as to discuss exactly whose feet will be beautiful upon the mountains. He will talk more specifically about the resurrection of the dead, and in particular, the first resurrection. And then he will end this chapter uh, with the same way that this passage in Isaiah, uh, chapter 52, verses seven through 10 ends, with this notion of collective salvation, where this Isaiah passage says, that the Lord shall bring again Zion. As we look at the structure of this chapter, The first few sections uh, still seem to be addressing the previous chapter. They seem to be addressing Isaiah chapter 53 and the Suffering Servant Song in particular. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 discuss Jesus Christ as the Father and the Son, and we'll have a great deal of commentary to read uh, in connection with that doctrine. And then in verses 5 through 7, we will see how it is that the Savior subjects himself to the will of the Father, and how he suffers. Then this atoning act and its result is discussed in verses 8 and 9. We'll discover that he did this so that he could stand betwixt us and justice and break the bands of death. Then Abinadi will bring us back to the statement in Isaiah chapter 53 that asked about the generation of this suffering servant. Who shall declare this generation? And in verse 10, he begins with a discussion of that. This discussion will take us through verse 13, and this is where Abinadi explains that those who will become his generation are those who will become his seed. And two specific groups uh, will be discussed here. Then Abinadi returns to the opening question of this trial. Now that he has addressed these issues in Isaiah chapter 53, And now addresses this opening question that was in Isaiah chapter 52, returning to the notion of those with beautiful feet. He will discuss that in verses 14 through 19, then moves into a discussion of the resurrection of the dead, and in particular, the first resurrection and who it is that will receive this marvelous gift. Five groups will be discussed in this section, which extends through verse 27. The fifth of these groups is the group that will not receive this gift of the first resurrection. Then, in the very final section of this chapter, and this is verses 28 through 31, Abinadi gives a final declaration and returns back once again to this opening question in this passage in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10, and returns to the notion of collective salvation, the idea of of Zion being established, and also the concept of of a watchman who lifts up his voice, and the Lord making bare his holy arm. With that, we'll return to verse 1. What we can see right away with verse 1 is that it is a book-ending statement. It's very similar and has some identical verbiage to the thing that Abinadi said before launching in to his recitation of Isaiah chapter 53. So we can find that at the end of Mosiah chapter 13, Abinadi says this, and this is in verse 34 of Mosiah 13 Have they not said, and they in this instance is all the holy prophets who have spoken since the beginning, have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? Yea, and have they not said also, that he should bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted? So with those two final verses in chapter 13, we can see that that is what he will now move into as he goes into chapter 14 and reads this suffering servant psalm. Then as he opens this chapter, Mosiah chapter 15, we find that he says almost exactly the same thing but in condensed form in verse 1. And now Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. So to restate at the end of chapter 13, Abinadi says, God himself shall come down among the children of men. And then he reads Isaiah 53. Then to end that, he returns back to the opening of this chapter and says, God himself shall come down among the children of men. It might make us think of uh, Nephi's statement, "Behold the condescension of God," or more accurately, uh, the being that spoke to him in his vision, "Behold the condescension of God." The apostle Paul had such a comprehensive understanding, it seems, of this condescension and of the concepts that Abinadi is teaching here. This short verse uh, shows this in First Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now as we move into verse 2 then, we see what Abinadi is doing. He is expanding upon the things that he has just shared uh, in Isaiah chapter 53. He doesn't do it in a verse-by-verse kind of a way. It's a little bit more like how Nephi would expand upon the Isaiah chapters that he included in the record. And again, the first way in which he will do this in this passage, uh, that really extends from verses 1 through 4, is to discuss the way in which Jesus Christ is the Father and the Son, and to discuss the oneness that exists between this Godhead. Verse 2 and because he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God, and having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. McConkie and Millet say this phrase means that the will of the Son was swallowed up in the will of the Father, meaning this phrase that says, having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father. That is, the flesh became subject to the Spirit, the mortal subject to the immortal. I seek not mine own will, Jesus explained. But the will of the Father which hath sent me, that's in John chapter 5, verse 30. Further, I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, that's in John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus did what Elohim would have him do. He carried out to the full extent the terms and conditions of the plan of the Father. Now verse 3, the Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh thus becoming the Father and Son. We were introduced to this idea recently as we went through King Benjamin's message, uh, the idea that we can be spiritually begotten of Jesus Christ, and and thus he is our Father in that sense. Uh, Back then, in fact, we read, I think, an important quote that talked about um, the tendency that we sometimes have to refer to Jesus as our elder brother. Uh, And how it may be that that's not entirely appropriate uh, because of the way that he hath spiritually begotten us, and he very much is our father in this spiritual sense. This passage by Abinadi will allow us to focus in on this issue uh, with more detail and precision and to discuss this particular issue. And, And by the way, this was probably quite a bit earlier than the time that King Benjamin Gave his sermon uh, when Abinadi was standing before Noah. Uh, it's probably during uh, King Benjamin's reign, but of course, King Benjamin's sermon was at the very end of his reign. So, this opening passage by Abinadi ends in verse 4 by him saying, And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. So, this gives us a great deal to think about, and here are several more pieces of commentary on this concept. Here uh, is from uh, McConkie and Millet, and they say the following Abinadi's purpose in this sermon is to declare more than the unity of the Godhead. His is the pronouncement of pronouncements, the doctrine of doctrines, the message of messages, which is that Christ is God, and if it were not so, he could not save us. Abinadi is declaring the true doctrine of the Incarnation. He is teaching and testifying that God, Jehovah, will become a man as Jesus, that he who was the great spirit shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, father and son, spirit and flesh, are brought together in one to form the one God who is the very eternal father of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. In summary, Christ will be both the father and the son. He will be called the father because he was conceived by the power of God, and he inherited all of the divine endowments, including immortality, From his exalted sire. He will be called the Son because of his flesh, his mortal inheritance from his mother, Mary. Therefore, Christ will be both flesh and spirit, both man and God, both Son and Father. And they, the Father and the Son, the God and the man, the Spirit and the flesh, are to be blended wondrously in one being, Jesus Christ, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. Now this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, which has several helpful pieces of a commentary. Uh, Sometimes the scriptures refer to Jesus Christ by using the title Father. Elder M. Russell Ballard explained why Jesus Christ is sometimes referred to as both the Father and the Son. How can Jesus Christ be both the Father and the Son? It really isn't as complicated as it sounds. Though He is the Son of God, He is the head of the Church— which is the family of believers. When we are spiritually born again, we are adopted into his family. He becomes our father or leader. In no way does this doctrine denigrate the role of God the Father. Rather, we believe it enhances our understanding of the role of God the Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. God our Heavenly Father is the Father of our spirits. We speak of God the Son as the Father of the righteous. He is regarded as the Father because of the relationship between him and those who accept his gospel, thereby becoming heirs of eternal life. And the third member of the Godhead, God the Holy Ghost, has the specific mission to teach and testify of truth as it pertains to the divinity of both God the Father and God the Son. On June thirtieth, 1916, under the leadership of President Joseph F. Smith, the Brethren set forth a detailed statement on the Father and the Son, entitled The Father and the Son, a doctrinal exposition by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. A portion of this exposition explains how Jesus Christ is identified in the Scriptures as both the Son and, at times, as the Father. So first, it says, Father is Creator. Scriptures that refer to God in many ways as the Father of the heavens and the earth are to be understood as signifying that God is the Maker, the Organizer, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. With this meaning, as the context shows in every case, Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of Elohim, is called the Father, and even the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. Several uh, references are given there, including Ether chapter four, verse seven; Alma chapter eleven, verses thirty-eight through thirty-nine, and Mosiah chapter fifteen. Then Jesus Christ, the Father of those who abide in His gospel, is the next sense in which He is a Father. Another sense in which Jesus Christ is regarded as the Father has reference to the relationship between him and those who accept his gospel and thereby become heirs of eternal life. To his faithful servants in the present dispensation, the Lord has said, Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world, and you are of them that my Father hath given me. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 50, verse 41. Then the final sense in this document, in which Christ is the Father, Jesus Christ the Father by divine investiture of authority. Jesus the Son has represented, and yet represents Elohim his Father in power and authority. Thus the Father placed his name upon the Son, and Jesus Christ spoke and ministered in and through the Father's name, and so far as power, authority, and Godship are concerned, his words and acts were and are those of the Father. Now Ogden and Skinner... Uh, provide us with this. 11 days before his death, Joseph Smith taught, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And we can read in Doctrine and Covenants section 130 verse 22 about that. Now Ogden and Skinner continue, there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. The prophet also declared Everlasting covenant was made between three personages before the organization of this earth and relates to their dispensation of things to men on the earth. These personages are called God the first, the creator, God the second, the redeemer, and God the third, the witness or testator. The Book of Mormon teaches plainly the roles of the second member of the Godhead as the Old Testament Jehovah and the New Testament Jesus but it also plainly elucidates his roles as father and son. Jesus Christ is both the Son and the Father, the Son because he was begotten by God the Father and submitted to the will of the Father, but also the Father in the sense that he is the creator or father of the earth. He is the father of our flesh because our flesh is made from the dust or elements of the earth that he created. He is the God or father of the Old Testament and the father or author of our salvation. He was and is the great Jehovah, he has all the attributes of the Father, and by divine investiture, he served the role of the Father in all things relative to our salvation. By his sacrifice, he became even more than our Savior. He became our covenant Father, and as we are spiritually reborn, we become the children of Christ. Uh, Then Ogden and Skinner say, for further references and explanation about becoming sons and daughters of Christ, see Mosiah chapter 5, Of course, that's uh, coming to the end at the covenant portion of King Benjamin's address. Ether chapter 3, Mosiah chapter 27, Doctrine and Covenants 25, uh, section 34, and also section 39. Jehovah of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are explained and distinguished. The phrase, they are one God, in verse 4, refers to Jehovah and Jesus as one God, the same person. At this point, since I've read a lot of commentary, I will return back now to verse 4 of Mosiah chapter 15, which says, And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. That's the verse Ogden and Skinner are referring to when they say that the phrase, they are one God, in verse 4, refers to Jehovah and Jesus as one God, the same person. Now they continue, in addition, All of the gods constituting the Godhead are one God in the sense that they are of of exactly the same mind and heart in everything they do with us here on earth. The concept of unity or oneness is foundational in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the basic and essential message inherent in the otherwise abstract English word atonement, at-one-ment, or the idea of becoming one. So much alike are the three members of the Godhead that if we know one, we know the others. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one God. Brigham Young University professor Stephen Robinson and Dean Garrett clarify, We tend to focus on the distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in order to understand them as individuals, but the message of Doctrine and Covenants section 93 verse 3, which says, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. Of course, I would add that sounds very much like the intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. Is such that a neat division between their respective roles is sometimes difficult to make, for their complete unity of thought, personality, and purpose usually makes them better understood by their oneness, by their alikeness, than by their differences. This unity of the Godhead is so perfect that it sometimes confuses us, as when Christ speaks as the Father, or when the Holy Ghost speaks as the Son. As we teach the truth concerning the separate physical natures of the Father and the Son, we must be careful not to separate them in any other sense, for the Father and the Son are in each other, as it says in John chapter 14, uh, verse ten, and are one in a way difficult for mortals to fully appreciate, though in a way that does not compromise their separate and individual being. Now for the final piece of commentary on this concept. Uh, this is from Robert L. Millet um, in an article called The Power of the Word he says, Abinadi's testimony of Christ as the Father and the Son is one of the grandest messianic sermons ever delivered, and it was Abinadi's defense before King Noah and his wicked priests, particularly that portion con- constituting chapter 15 of Mosiah. The first five verses of this chapter are especially poignant and may be understood in light of the ministry of Christ as the Father and the Son. Key doctrinal matters are given in verses 1-5. through five. First, God himself, Jehovah, the God of ancient Israel, will come to earth to take a physical body and bring to pass the redemption for all men. Second, because Jehovah, or Jesus Christ, will have a physical body and dwell in the flesh, like every other mortal son and daughter of God, he will be known as the Son of God. On the other hand, because he will be conceived by the power of God and will thus have within him the powers of the Spirit, he will be known as the Father. This same doctrine is given in a modern revelation through the prophet Joseph Smith, uh, and then section 93 is referenced there. Third, the will of the Son is to be swallowed up in the will of the Father. That is, the flesh will, will become subject to the Spirit, the mortal subject to the immortal. I seek not my own will, Jesus explained, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. In short, Jesus will do what the Father would have him do. And fourth, thus Christ will be both the Father and the Son. He will be called the Father because he was conceived by the power of God and inherited all of the divine endowments, particularly immortality, from his exalted sire. He will be called the Son because of the flesh, his mortal inheritance from his mother Mary. Therefore Christ will be both flesh and spirit, both man and God, both Son and Father. And they, the Son and the Father, the man and the God, the flesh and the Spirit, are to be blended wondrously in one being, Jesus Christ, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth, and of earth. The last portion of that quote was incorporated into my earlier reading from the McConkie and Millett uh, commentary as well. Now, moving to this next subject of this chapter then, and according to Brother Millett, uh, verse 5, which we're about to read, is, is a key part of what we've just read, but it also kind of moves us, I think, into a new topic— uh, because here we're discussing the way in which the Savior subjects himself to the will of the Father and the way in which he suffers. Ogden and Skinner say this about this particular section, uh, verses 5 through 9. Mosiah chapter 15, verses 5 through 9, describes in considerable detail Christ's perfect willingness to come down and perform mighty miracles and yet experience rejection, suffering, and death, all according to the will of the Father. To intercede for all the children of men and resolve all the consequences of the fall. Thus Jesus the Messiah is the great mediator. He pleads our case before God the Father. So we can see as we read this passage that we're coming back to this concept that Abinedai introduced in his reading of Isaiah chapter 53 that this suffering servant would somehow vicariously suffer for each of us and take upon us his transgressions and be bruised for them and wounded for them. So verse 5, And thus the flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation, and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. There, There are many passages that we could read about his uh, suffering temptation and never yielding to them. And uh, this adds to those, of course. Verse 6, And after all this, after working many mighty miracles among the children of men, he shall be led, yea, even as Isaiah said, and now there he is, referencing Isaiah chapter 53, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Yea, even so shall he be led, crucified, and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. Clyde Williams wrote, The Savior is the perfect example of how to use our agency best. Abinadi aptly described the Savior's submission as the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. Submitting one's will to God's is not always easy. The implication is that submitting our will to God's will require sacrifice and likely some suffering. Now in verses 8 and 9, we read of the result of this atoning act. Verse 8, And thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men. I think it's useful at this point as we read these verses to consider what it would feel like and what it did feel like for each of us to come to an understanding of this concept for the first time. Having ascended into heaven having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taking upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. I think the effect that this can have is to fill us with great hope. Personally, we have this ancient prophet uh, speaking under duress to Noah and his court about these issues and yet, it can it can come to us and fill us with hope and make us think that there really is someone that we can lean on, who has stood between us and justice, and who can give us victory over our impending death. This small passage is almost like a seed uh, in discussing this relationship between the Savior and justice, almost like a seed of the great uh, tree that will later bloom. Uh, when Alma the Younger is speaking to his son, Corianton. And amazingly, as we think about this, this seed is being planted in the heart of Alma the Younger's father as he stands among Noah and his court. And uh, he, of course, will pass his faith on to his son, Alma the Younger, who will expand upon this idea of justice and the way in which the Savior stood betwixt us and justice and that how the demands of justice are ever so real, but how it is that the Savior can meet those and still extend his mercy to us. Now in this section of the chapter, in verse 10, through verse 13, Abinadi will return to the statement in Isaiah chapter 53, who shall declare this generation? He'll help us understand who the generation of this Father is, uh, of, of Christ the Father, and how it is that he will have everlasting seed. So verse 10, and now I say unto you, who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And the wording of that is very curious. Uh, It is at the point at which he has completed what it is that he set out to to finish when he came into mortality, and in fact, he uses that language uh, when he's on the cross. And now what say ye, says Abinadi, and who shall be his seed? So, who shall declare his generation is the question that Isaiah asked. Abinadi contemporizes that question a little bit as he stands before King Noah in his court and says, who shall be his seed? He will go on to answer this question in verses 11 through 13. He'll talk about two specific groups that become the seed of Christ. First, this piece of commentary from Bruce R. Um, this is called, Who Shall Declare His Generation? One text is the great messianic utterance of Isaiah, which he couched in these simple words, Who shall declare his generation? This means, who will give his genesis? Who will reveal his genealogy? Who will give the source from whence he sprang? Who will announce the divinity of the mortal Messiah? We might also take another text, and this is one that Jesus himself spoke. He said, Whose son is he? He is the firstborn spirit child of God, our Heavenly Father, The Lord Jesus, the great Jehovah, the creator of all things under the Father, is the firstborn of all that spirit host. Whose son is he? Is he the son of a mortal father and a mortal mother? Is he the son of God? Is he separate and apart from all mankind by virtue of the birth that was his? Who shall declare his generation? In that premortal life, our Father ordained and established a plan of salvation named the Gospel of God, which plan was to enable his spirit children, Christ included, to advance and progress and become like Him. In that day, He issued a great cry. A great proclamation went forth through the councils of eternity with reference to the Father's plan. He said, Whom shall I send to be my Son? To work out the infinite and atoning sacrifice, and eternal atoning sacrifice. Whom shall I send to be born into mortality, inheriting from me the power of immortality? Whom shall I send to lay down his life for the sins of men and to reconcile fallen man to me? Uh, we I, we can just pause there for a moment and and clarify that sometimes when we think about this great council in heaven, when this when the, when the Lord uh, elucidated upon his plan, I won't say proposed his plan because that almost makes it sound as though he was submitting. A plan for approval. This was his stated plan. His question was not, which plan should we follow? His question was, whom shall I send? Uh, this was his perfect plan already. So, Bruce R. McConkie continues When that great cry went forth, as you know, there were two volunteers. One stepped forward, the firstborn of the Father, the Lord Jesus, and said, Here am I, send me, I will be thy son, I will do thy will. I will follow thy plan, do all things in harmony with that which thou hast ordained. There was another volunteer, and he said, Here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind, and surely I will do it. Wherefore give me thine honor. That's out of Moses chapter 4, verse 1. That is, let me replace you and be exalted and most noble of all persons who live and are. Well, the decree was issued I will send the first. And that was the day when there was war in heaven, as you know. And uh, we can add there that another uh, word that can be used in place of that is that, that, that Lucifer rebelled, and that was the genesis of that war. The first volunteer was the Lord Jesus Christ. He then became the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the one appointed to come down and do all things needed to put in operation his father's plan. Now from that day, from the day of creation on, The prophets foretold his coming and ministry. We call these prophetic utterances messianic prophecies. As for instance, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's out of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Or, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with just judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. And that's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. So, in that commentary, Elder McConkie is expanding that question who shall declare his generation uh, and considering it from so many different angles. Now, Abinadi will focus in in this one sense, and that is who shall be the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ after he has performed this atoning act. So verse 11, Behold, I say unto you that whosoever has heard the voice, or excuse me, whosoever has heard the words of the prophets. So there's the first group. Yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you that all those who have hearkened unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to that day for a remission of their sins, I say unto you that these are his seed, or they are the heirs of the kingdom of God. Now, this is similar, I think, to Paul's language in the sense that the only prerequisite for becoming heirs to the kingdom of God and becoming the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ, as He is the Father in this sense, the only prerequisite is belief. Um, that that's kind of the way the verbiage is laid out in this verse. Um, All those who have hearkened unto their words and have believed is what Abinadise says. What we can understand from this, and of course what we can understand from Paul's writings, is that in this case, belief implies a very active belief. It's an active adherence uh, to the covenants that one can make with God in order to follow a pathway that takes them ultimately to the final destination of the kingdom of God as joint heirs with the chief heir. Jesus Christ. And, and the only way to do that is through the doctrine of Christ, as Nephi explained it. It implies covenant-making the whole way through, both the covenants that first put us on the path and then the, the remission, uh, the retention of the remission of sins, which keep us on the path as we travel along it. And this covenant pathway and the other covenants and ordinances of salvation that are part of it will finally take us to that final destination, if we indeed hearken unto their words and believe that the Lord would redeem his people. Now verse 12, For these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died, to redeem them from their transgressions. And now are they not his seed. Now, Abinadi will continue with this overall distinction between those uh, who believed him uh, or, or or, who have this covenant relationship with him and those who do not. Because later, as he moves into a discussion of the resurrection, as we will see, it's really about the first resurrection, those who will attain unto that. He's doing the same thing here, but we know, of course, that there is a universality to the salvation of Jesus Christ, and that there will be an element of salvation uh, for those who never did embrace him during their period of probation. Uh, But in this case, Abinadi is talking about those who are his seed, those who have embraced uh, the salvation of Jesus Christ in this way. So verse 13, yea, and are not the prophets, so there's the other group, everyone that has opened his mouth to prophesy, that has not fallen into transgression, I mean all the holy prophets ever since the world began, I say unto you that they are his seed. Well, here's some commentary, first of all, from Ogden and Skinner. Abinadi continued to answer questions about Isaiah's teachings. Upon offering his soul as an offering for sin, Christ will see his seed. The seed or children of Christ, are they who covenant with him and are born of him, spiritually begotten by him, and changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. The seed of Christ and heirs of kingdom of, God, of the kingdom of God include all the holy prophets. President Dallin H. Oaks taught in a April General Conference address in 1985 in these great scriptures from the Book of Mormon we learn that those who are qualified by faith and repentance and compliance with the laws and ordinances of the gospel will have their sins borne by the Lord Jesus Christ so there's Elder Oaks's acknowledgement of all that is implied in a language when he says that they have hearkened unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people, that it includes all the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Then he continues, In spiritual and figurative terms, they will become the sons and daughters of Christ, heirs to his kingdom. They are they; are These are they who will be called by his name in the last day. Now, Elder Merrill J. Bateman said this in 1995 in an April conference. The Savior as a member of the Godhead knows each of us personally. Isaiah and the prophet Abinadi said that when Christ would make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Abinadi explains that his seed are the righteous, those who follow the prophets. In the garden and on the cross, Jesus saw each of us, and not only bore our sins, but also experienced our deepest feelings, so that he would know how to comfort and strengthen us. Now finally this, um, from Elder Busar Makonki and this is out of the promised Messiah. Seed is the progeny of the species. Among us men, it is our children. The children of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who believe in him and obey his gospel, those who exercise the power given them to become his sons and his daughters, and who as a consequence are adopted into his family. Included in this group of whom Abinadi speaks are all those who have been faithful from the day of Father Adam to that moment all are members of their Messiah's family. In principle, the same thing will apply to all the faithful yet to come and who shall be spiritually born of him. Isaiah's prophecy and Abinadi's interpretation speak only of those who have been and not of those who shall yet believe and who shall gain the adoption of sonship in a future day. A clear awareness of this fact is essential to a full understanding of what Isaiah and Abinadi really mean. With our Lord's seed thus clearly identified, let us note the time and circumstances under which he will see them. Abinadi's rendition of Isaiah's inspired utterance says, When his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. In other words, he shall see his seed after he has worked out the infinite and eternal atonement. He shall see his seed after he has sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane, after he has been crucified by wicked men after he has said it is finished, after he has voluntarily let his spirit leave its mortal tenement. What was it that then occurred which enabled him to see his seed? His own declaration made while on the cross itself was that he would go into that very day to paradise. That's in Luke chapter 23. Peter affirmed that he did, in fact, go to a world of waiting spirits, to those who were awaiting the day of the resurrection, to those who felt themselves imprisoned because of the long absence of their spirits from their bodies, and that there he preached the gospel. That's out of 1 Peter chapter 3. In his glorious vision of the redemption of the dead, President Joseph F. Smith saw what transpired when the Messiah visited the departed dead. Quote, "...the eyes of my understanding were opened, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me. And I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great." And there were gathered together in one place an innumerable company of the spirits of the just, who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality. All these had departed the mortal life, firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection through the grace of God the Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The promise was then, and that's of course out of Doctrine and Covenants section 138, and that's verses 11 through 14. Then Elder McConkie continues, The promise was that when his soul should be made an offering for sin, then he would see his seed, which seed consisted of all the righteous persons who had departed this life up to that time. How wondrously this prophecy was fulfilled reminds us anew of the depth and glory of the messianic utterances which deal with him who has adopted us into his family. This vision of what Isaiah meant by the Messiah seeing his seed Give sense and meaning to the balance of the prophetic statement. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And that's uh, verse 10 out of Isaiah 53, which we recently read. If this prophecy was meant to be fulfilled during his mortal sojourn on earth, we would list it as having failed. He did not prolong his days. A voluntary death overtook him in the prime of life. Nor did the pleasure of the Lord find full fruition while he dwelt in a state where death lies in wait for the weary pilgrim. It is only in the resurrection that the pleasure of the Lord is perfected, for it is only when spirit and element are inseparably connected, that either God or man can receive a fullness of joy. And that comes out of Doctrine and Covenants section 93. Thus having made his soul an offering for sin, having seen his seed, all the righteous dead from the days of Adam to that moment— as they assembled to greet and worship him in the paradise of their Lord, and having thereafter risen in glorious immortality to live and reign forever, our Messiah truly fulfilled the prophetic utterance, for then his days were prolonged forever, and the pleasure in his hand was infinite. That's such a beautiful piece of commentary by Elder McConkie that once again ties into this phrase in verse 10, that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, He shall see his seed. So that's our our understanding of who shall declare his generation. At this point, Abinadi has now spoken of these issues that he raised in his reading or recitation of Isaiah chapter 53. Now he will go back even further and discuss Isaiah chapter 52. Verses 7 through 10, that opening question that was given to him, as we've discussed before, which was used to frame him. But now Isaiah will actually take that passage and show that it actually was the perfect opening to his sermon. And now he will come back to the full meaning of that. And we can remember in Abinadi's touch me not statement in uh, Mosiah chapter 13 that he said, I still have to explain Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 10 to you, since you have brought it up. So now here is uh, his explanation coming full circle round of this opening passage of this trial. So first he will talk about those with beautiful feet, and in this passage, um, verses 14 through 19, he will focus in on this. So verse 14, and these are they who have published peace, who have brought good tidings of good, who have published salvation, And said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And oh, how beautiful upon the mountains were their feet. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that are still publishing peace. So now he's expanding on Isaiah's language here and saying that it's still going on now. And that's a subtle way of Abinadi saying that I'm doing that now before you. We're not just talking about prophets of old when we talk about these messengers and their beautiful feet. Then verse 17. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who shall publish hereafter, or shall hereafter publish peace, yea, from this time henceforth and forever. So it's the prophets, it's his messengers, it's those who declare these glad tidings. And of course, he is elucidated greatly upon what these glad tidings actually are. It's prophets and messengers from past, present, which Abinadi is in the present and in the future, then. He rounds this explanation out in verse 18 by saying, And behold, I say unto you, this is not all. In other words, it's not just these messengers. For, oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is, the founder of peace. Yea, even the Lord who has redeemed his people, yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people. So the feet of the master himself are beautiful upon the mountains. We can think of of his feet as he walked uh, from the Galilee region to Judea and how it is that he taught in this manner and then ultimately how when he went into the upper room with his disciples, how he washed their feet and then ultimately, of course, how his feet were nailed to the cross. It's in honor then of his beautiful feet that his messengers uh, emulate him and travel the earth with their feet and declare glad tidings through all corners of the earth. As a personal aside, at this point I'll just say that my career has had me in the airport. I'm in the airport a lot, in the Salt Lake City Airport to be specific, and it's a, a regular opportunity for me to see missionaries returning and, and walking um, off the plane traveling down the terminal headed to baggage claim and I can look down and see their worn shoes and it indeed is a beautiful sight. Now for some commentary on this. Ogden and Skinner wrote, the holy prophets have preached and published the good tidings of peace and salvation and they have testified that God lives and reigns in his heaven. Blessings on their feet. The feet in scriptural symbolism, are the parts of the body that carry God's messengers out into the mountains or the nations of the world. Mission doctors worldwide know that missionaries have as many problems with their well-used feet as with any other part of their bodies. How beautiful and how indispensable are those feet! How beautiful especially are the feet of Him who is the Prince of Peace, the founder and provider of peace, and redemption for all who truly desire to become His children. Isaiah's words, How beautiful upon the mountains, appear seven times in the Book of Mormon, four times here, and also in 1 Nephi chapter 13, Mosiah chapter 12, uh, 3 Nephi chapter 20. The beginning phrase, How beautiful, is in Hebrew, Ma-Navu, M-A-H-N-A-U-V-O-O. Before moving into a couple other pieces of commentary on this subject, I I, want to pause here and just remember what it was that Elder Holland said not too long ago about President Thomas S. Monson. He said in an October 2014 conference talk, In that regard, I pay a personal tribute to President Thomas Spencer Monson. I've been blessed by an association with this man for 47 years now, and the image of him I will cherish until I die is of him flying home from then-economically-devastated East Germany in his house slippers, because he had given away not only his second suit and his extra shirts, but the very shoes from off his feet. How beautiful upon the mountains, and shuffling through an airline terminal, are the feet of him that publisheth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Now some commentary from Donald Perry from his book called Understanding Isaiah, and he focuses in on this idea of the pronoun him, where it says, uh, beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, That bringeth good tidings. He says the singular pronoun him may refer specifically to Christ, the ultimate source of the gospel's good news. In addition, all those who preach the gospel are beautiful because of the wonderful message they take to others. And of course, we can see this is what Abinadi did uh, because he talked both of the Lord's servants and of the Lord's feet himself. Now, Perry continues By the Lord's definition, mountains describes the place where the gospel is preached, regardless of the actual physical location in the world. As we read in Latter-day Revelation, quote, "...thou shalt declare glad tidings, yea, publish it upon the mountains and upon every high place, and among every people that shalt be permitted to see." That's Doctrine and Covenants section 19, verse 29. The feet represent the whole body of those who travel about preaching the gospel. The good news, any references, Romans chapter 10 there. The good news, tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The angel said to the shepherds on the night of Christ's nativity, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Then a multitude of the heavenly hosts sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on, peace goodwill, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God's peace is a gift of the Spirit to those who come unto Christ, the Prince of Peace. So there are lots of tie-ins here. We can think about that opening question, again, from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7-10. through 10 where it's peace that is being published by these these with the beautiful feet who carry the message of the gospel to the entire world. It's peace that is coming from them. This tie-in is also interesting, or or I should say this tie-in is also interesting. The angel that appears to King Benjamin and declares glad tidings to him uses the same language as this uh, uh, angel that declares them in, in the book of Luke in chapter 2. And uh, it has been posited uh, by Ogden and Skinner, actually, that perhaps this angel that appeared to King Benjamin was Abinadi himself. When we look at the timing of, of this Book of Mormon narrative, it, it could be that Abinadi's um, appearance before King Noah and his court that we're looking at right here, would have been some 20 years prior to the time that King Benjamin delivered his address. Of course, that's conjecture, uh, but it is a fun thought. Now finally, this from the uh, Book of Mormon Institute manual. Paraphrasing Isaiah, Abinadi extolled the great blessings that have come and will come to all the holy prophets who publish peace and to the Savior who is the founder of peace. That peaceful message is that the Redeemer would come and indeed has come to redeem his people from sin and has brought to pass the resurrection of the dead. While serving in the Seventy, Elder Carlos E. A. C. shared an insight into the imagery of this statement from Isaiah. No one is more beautiful or more blessed than those who serve God by preaching and exemplifying the truth. It is the most sanctifying and beautifying labor of all. The feet, the voices, the faces, and the whole being of those preachers who share saving truths will always be precious and beautiful to new converts, especially to those who have suffered in their sins. In the eyes of those who have learned of Christ and of his power to save, there are few if any blemishes in the missionaries who walked long distances to bring the gospel message. Now returning to the text in verse 19, Abinadi makes it clear why it is that this message is of such great value, and then this will take us into a discussion of the resurrection. He says, For were it not for the redemption which he hath made for his people, which was prepared from the foundation of the world, I say unto you, were it not for this, all mankind must have perished. I think we can't help but relate that statement to Jacob's in his great sermon in 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 7, where he said, Wherefore, It must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth to rise no more. But instead of this fate, rising no more, as Jacob said, it goes this way because of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abinadi continues in verse 20, But behold, the bands of death shall be broken, and the Son reigneth, and hath power over the dead. Therefore he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. This, of course, is glad tidings. This is good news of the gospel. Instead of the platitudinal level that the priests of King Noah were using Isaiah's passage on when they spoke of peace and glad tidings. uh, This is the meaning of it, truly, that the Savior has overcome death and has opened the way for us as well. So now, uh, Abinadi moves us into this discussion of the resurrection, and specifically, the first resurrection. Abinadi will talk about those who qualify for this. And uh, before moving into that, we have this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Jesus Christ was the first person on this earth to be resurrected. Consequently, the period of time referred to in the scriptures as the first resurrection commenced with his triumph over the grave and continues through the millennium. Abinadi taught that those who would come forth in the first resurrection would include the prophets and all those that have believed in their words, those who have died in ignorance without having salvation declared unto them, and little children who die Before they are accountable. So, those are four groups that are mentioned as those who will qualify for the first resurrection. Again, that's the prophets. That's those who believed in the words of the prophets, those who died in ignorance without having salvation declared unto them, and little children who die before they are accountable. Those four groups. So, verse 21, Abinadi will now take us through this. And there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection. Yea, even a resurrection of those who have been, and who are, and who shall be even until the resurrection of Christ, for so shall he be called. And now the resurrection of all the prophets, and all those who have believed in their words, or all those who have kept the commandments of God shall come forth in the first resurrection. Therefore they are the first resurrection." They are raised to dwell with God who has redeemed them, thus they have eternal life through Christ who has broken the bands of death. And these are those who have part in the first resurrection, and these are they that have died before Christ came in their ignorance, not having salvation declared unto them. And thus the Lord bringeth about the restoration of these, and they shall have part in the first resurrection, or have eternal life being redeemed by the Lord." And little children also have eternal life. So there, there it is. Uh, Abinadi has laid it all there, laid it out all there. I can't help but draw the comparison here uh, when we think about Christ, who has broken the bands of death, who has made this possible. We can think back in First Nephi chapter seven, at the time when Nephi's bands were broken, and uh, that was done through the power of God. There are so many instances in the lives of prophets when there's an incident or an instance uh, that really is a type of what will happen in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that, that little um, incident uh, in Nephi's story is certainly that. As is, and very dramatically, Abinadi's standing before Noah and his priests and um, facing his ultimate uh, demise uh, because they say that, they, that, they, that he is worthy of death after everything that he tells them. King Benjamin also talked about this concept, especially in Mosiah chapter 4, and discussed how it is that those who are not accountable are also covered by this atoning act uh, by the Savior. And so as Abinadi puts it here, little children also have eternal life, in verse 25. So here's some commentary on this. Uh, President, or excuse me, the prophet Joseph Smith taught, children will be enthroned in the presence of God and the Lamb. They will there enjoy the fullness of that light, glory, and intelligence which is prepared in the celestial kingdom. Uh, this is from Bruce R. McConkey. Little children shall be saved. They are alive in Christ and shall have eternal life. For them the family unit will continue, and the fullness of exaltation is theirs. No blessing shall be withheld. They shall rise in immortal glory, grow to full maturity, and live forever in the highest heaven of the celestial kingdom all through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah, all because of the atoning sacrifice of him who died that we might live. Truly, it is one of the sweetest and most soul-satisfying doctrines of the gospel. I think the soul-satisfying nature of this doctrine is the other side of the stick or other side of the coin to the condemnatory language that Mormon will later use in Moroni chapter 8. When he talks about the, the doctrine or false doctrine of infant baptism, uh, when we come to realize that provision has been made for those who are not yet accountable, it does become a beautiful and soul-satisfying doctrine. This, too, is from Bruce R. McConkie from an article called Salvation of Little Children, and he will mostly quote from the Prophet Joseph Smith and from Joseph Fielding Smith. Joseph Smith taught children will be enthroned in the presence of God and the Lamb. They will there enjoy the fullness of that light, glory, and intelligence which is prepared in the celestial kingdom. President Joseph Fielding Smith spoke very expressly on this point. The Lord will grant unto these children the privilege of all the sealing blessings which pertain to the exaltation. We were all mature spirits before we were born and the bodies of little children will grow after the resurrection to the full stature of the spirit and all the blessings will be theirs through their obedience, the same as if they had lived to maturity and received them on the earth. The Lord is just and will not deprive any person of a blessing simply because he dies before the blessing can be received. It would be manifestly unfair to deprive a little child of the privilege of receiving all the blessings of exaltation in the world to come simply because it died in infancy. Children who die in childhood will not be deprived of any blessing. When they grow after the resurrection to the full maturity of the Spirit, they will be entitled to all the blessings which they would have been entitled to had they been privileged to tarry here and receive them. Will children be married and live in the family unit? Certainly. There can be no question about this. If they gain salvation, which is eternal life, which is exaltation, it means that they are married, and live in the family unit. President Joseph Fielding Smith has so stated in plain words, and it is something that must necessarily be so. So, so much is implied in that. As Abinadi says, little children also have eternal life. Now, Abinadi will talk about a, a fifth group, we might say. We've talked about the, the kind of four categories of those who will uh, be part of the first resurrection. And now here's the fifth group that will not Now they will be resurrected as we know, but it's this first resurrection that Abinadiah is discussing here. So verse 26, but behold and fear and tremble before God, for ye ought to tremble, for the Lord redeemeth none such that rebel against him and die in their sins. That sounds very similar to King Benjamin's language as well as he comes to the end of each of his chapters in his sermon. Yea, even all those that have perished in their sins ever since the world began that have willfully rebelled against God. Now that, of course, sounds very similar to King Benjamin at the end of uh, Mosiah chapter 2. That have known the commandments of God and would not keep them. These are they that have no part in the first resurrection. Therefore, ought ye not to tremble? As Abinadi is addressing King Noah and his court and especially Alma as he is listening so carefully. For salvation cometh to none such. For the Lord hath redeemed none such. Yea, neither can the Lord redeem such, for he cannot deny himself, for he cannot deny justice when it has its claim. There again is this idea of justice, and the Lord, uh, actually it says, neither can the Lord redeem such, which is quite a bold thing to say, and it's very similar to Alma the Younger's language to Corianton when he talks about uh, God being bound in this manner, an omnipotent God, no less. But... He cannot deny himself, for he cannot deny justice when it has its claim, is the way Abinadi puts it here, and it's as though he's planting these seeds of understanding into Alma's heart as he listens. And then that is, of course, transferred to his son, and then he transfers it to his son, uh, Corianton, and and, uh, we get that um, incredible chapter on justice and mercy later. I, I believe it's Alma chapter 41, or maybe 42. I think it is forty-two. I think forty-one discusses resurrection, which is which is interesting here too. Now, as we've come to the end of this short passage by Binodai, it allows us to talk for a moment about who it is that will be redeemed. This is from McConkie and Millet. Redemption, in its highest sense, consists in being delivered from death and sin, and inheriting exaltation in the celestial kingdom. While salvation is made available to the penitent and the obedient, the wicked remain as though there had been no redemption made except it be by the loosing of the bands of death. Uh, And that's an expression out of Alma chapter 11, verse 41. That is, the wicked are redeemed only in the sense that they are delivered from hell, eventually escape the perils of the second death, and come forth to a kingdom of glory in the first resurrection. Uh, Now this from Ogden and Skinner. The Old Testament as it presently stands has very few references to the resurrection of the dead. No instances of resurrection occurred during the entire Old Testament period, and few scriptural references to it have survived from the world of the Bible. In the more enlightening world of the Book of Mormon prophets, however, we have a glorious exposition on the resurrection, taught and inscribed in the middle of the 2nd century B.C. Uh, just to pause there for a moment, we should, we should wonder about the, the miracle of that, because again, there's nothing in the Old Testament um, that, that it, it has this much clarity when the resurrection is spoken of. Abinadi spoke of the first resurrection, occurring immediately following the resurrection of Christ, who is the firstfruits of them that slept, to use language from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Those resurrected were the righteous who lived from Adam to Christ, the prophets, followers of the prophets, those obedient to the commandments, little children who lived from the time of Adam to Christ, but died before the age of accountability, and those who died in ignorance, but who would have received Christ and the gospel with all their hearts. There are those four categories once again in a different order. There are different subsequent times of the resurrection from the dead. There is a continuation of the first resurrection at the second coming of Christ. These are the inheritors of celestial glory. There is a resurrection at the time of the second trump at Christ's coming. These are inheritors of the terrestrial glory. There is a resurrection at the end of the thousand years of the millennium, and these are the inheritors of the telestial glory. All of this is coming, of course, from Doctrine and Covenants section 76. And then there are those resurrected at the sounding of the fourth trump, the sons of perdition, who remain filthy still. Now that Abinadi has discussed all of this with respect to to that very opening question of his trial that comes from Isaiah chapter 52 about the beautiful feet upon the mountains and the messengers who spread it. And then um, about the resurrection. He now returns back to to this final um, notion or expression that is in that opening Isaiah passage uh, where it talks about uh, the arm of the Lord and Zion and Jerusalem being redeemed. Yeah, just to review that, uh, here is that passage uh, once again, because now uh, Abinadi is about to bring it all to a close as he explains it. So here is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10, as it is read by this antagonistic priest in Mosiah chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto God, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I wanted to reread that because as we come to the end of that passage, we get this um, idea of collective salvation, and the concepts that we've talked about so far, uh, we've certainly uh, thought about in the individual sense. Um, But there is this oneness that Abinadi introduced to us when he talks about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and we've, of course, read commentary about the oneness oneness that exists between uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. There is also a oneness among all of us who are saved, and that is is represented in the word Zion. And that indeed is in this Isaiah passage. And now as Abinadi, Abinadi closes this discussion at the end of Mosiah chapter 15, he comes back to this idea. And so he says this in verse 28, And now I say unto you that the time shall come, that the salvation of the Lord shall be declared to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Then with that short preface, he slips back into Isaiah's language by saying, Yea, Lord, thy watchmen shall lift up their voice. That's another way of talking about these beautiful messengers of God, of course. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. First, with respect to the use of this phrase, thy watchmen, uh, lifting up their voice, this comes from Hoyt Brewster in his book Isaiah Plain and Simple. Watchmen are charged with the responsibility of safeguarding the people of the Lord and of keeping the doctrines of his gospel pure. Speaking for himself and others called to serve in the governing councils of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, President Spencer W. Kimball declared, We continue to warn the people and plead with them. For we are watchmen upon the towers, and in our hands we have a trumpet, which we must blow loudly and sound the alarm. Then returning to this idea of Zion, this collective idea, here are several statements by Joseph Smith. This one comes out of the uh, fairly newly published Joseph Smith manual, Uh, a, a couple from there and then from History of the Church. He says "The building up of Zion is a cause that has interested the people of God in every age. It is a theme upon which prophets, priests, and kings have dwelt with peculiar delight. They have looked forward with joyful anticipation to the day in which we live with fired uh, and fired with heavenly and joyful anticipations. They have sung and written and prophesied of this our day, but they died without the sight. We are the favored people that God has made choice of to bring about the latter day glory." It is left for us to see, participate in, and help to roll forward the latter-day glory. On another occasion, he said, I know that Zion in the due time of the Lord will be redeemed. But how many will be the days of her purification, tribulation, and affliction? The Lord has kept hid from my eyes. And when I inquire concerning this subject, the voice of the Lord is, Be still and know that I am God. Then we have this from History of the Church. The prophet said, The advancement of the cause of God and the building up of Zion is as much one man's business as another's. The only difference is that one is called to fulfill one duty and another another duty. But if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the rest rejoice with it. And the eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of thee, nor the head to the foot, I have no need of thee. Party feelings, separate interests, exclusive designs should be lost sight of, in the one common cause, in the interest of the whole. God will gather together all things that are in heaven, and all things that are upon the earth, even in one. When the saints of God will be gathered in from ev- in one from every nation, and kindred and people and tongue. We can remember that Abinadi used that language earlier too. When the Jews will be gathered together into one, the wicked will also be gathered together and be destroyed, as spoken of by the prophets. The Spirit of God will also dwell with His people and be withdrawn from the rest of the nations. And all things, whether in heaven or on earth, will be in one, even in Christ. The heavenly priesthood will unite with the earthly to bring about those great purposes and whilst we are thus united in one common cause, to roll forth the kingdom of God, a work that God and angels have contemplated with delight for generations past that fired the souls of the ancient patriarch and prophets a work that is destined to bring about the destruction of the powers of darkness, the renovation of the earth, the glory of God, and the salvation of the human family. Then Abinadi comes to a close and rounds all of this out in verses 30 and 31 by giving this expression back to Noah and his priests. Uh, from this Isaiah chapter 52 passage that they first gave to him. He has now come to the end of his explanation of this. In verse 30 he says, Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Donald Perry helps us with this phrase, made bare his holy arm. In ancient times, men prepared for battle by throwing their cloak away from the shoulder of their fighting arm. Uh, We can see that um, reflected in Psalm 74, verse 11. At the second coming of Christ, God will make bare his arm when he shows forth his power for all to see. Well, here's a final piece of commentary from Ogden and Skinner on uh, not only the meaning of what Abinadi is saying, but kind of the meta narrative that's going on here as Abinadi is answering uh, Noah and his priests. They say, Abinadi answered the question asked by one of Noah's priests in Mosiah chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. Of course, we know that corresponds with Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. Isaiah's words are fulfilled as the watchmen, the Lord's earthly leaders and messengers. Lift up their voices to declare salvation to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The Lord reestablishes Zion, causing joyful singing and redeems Jerusalem. All nations will see the power, glory, and salvation of the Lord. Well, this brings us to the end then of this beautiful chapter, Mosiah chapter 15, where Abinadi is bringing all of this to a close in such a poetic and a powerful way taking this opening question from the trial and using it as the text that he will expand on as he delivers the message that God intended for him to deliver to these people. Uh, ben and I will still have more to say in uh, Mosiah chapter 15 and uh, in, in chapter 16 as well, and then we'll see that his story ends in a way that makes him a perfect type of Christ and a message, uh, a messenger for all of us To admire and appreciate. So, again, this brings us to the end of Mosiah chapter 15. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions. In these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.